This is They Create Worlds, Episode 6, The Early History of Electronic Arts. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today we wanted to start looking at electronic arts. The story has already been out there for the most part. However, there's a lot of overall context that has not really been brought into the bigger picture. And there's some tidbits of the founding of the history that's still a little bit controversial. That's right. And also, some people who have not had their voices heard on the early years of the company that I've had a chance to talk to and illuminates a somewhat different history in certain aspects on the early days of the company. I guess the logical place to start is the prehistory. Where did EA come from? Who are the principal players? And how did they really come to power? How did they get the money? Sure. So the company really is the brainchild of Trip Hawkins. Everybody that studies the video game industry certainly knows Trip Hawkins. He needs no introduction. This is a man that had a vision far stronger and sharper than most of the entrepreneurs that got involved in the early video game industry. I'm sorry, I should say the early computer game industry, because even though Electronic Arts is a major player in what we now consider to be this larger video game industry, Electronic Arts was very specifically only a computer game company when it began. And Trip Hawkins was a lifelong gamer, which at this point meant things like board games and simulation games for sports like Accustat and Stratomatic, these kind of simulation games. Obviously, it didn't mean computer games because he was growing up in a time before there were widespread computer games, just isolated examples in research laboratories and the like. Of course. So Trip Hawkins grew up with this love of games, and then when he was in school, got introduced to computers. And this was a life-changing moment for Tripp to hear him tell it, and I really do believe that it must have been, because he learned that personal computers were starting to appear in 1975. Now, we're talking about things like the Altair 8800 that are barely functional boxes with switches and blinking lights on the front. We're not even talking about a Trash 80 or an Apple II with a keyboard and a monitor and all of that fancy stuff. But Trip kind of honed in right away that there were people out there that liked playing those deeply cerebral games and simulations like the sports games he loved so much. Mm-hmm. And that a computer was a sophisticated device that could do a lot of the grunt work of running the simulation. And now computers were coming into the home, even if they were primitive at this point, which meant that the average person who liked a good simulation game would soon be able to play it in the home. 
And so Trip Hawkins, to hear him tell it, did a little projecting, uh, made some projections, and felt that by 1982, this was in 1975 when he was doing this, that by 1982, computers would become sophisticated enough based on the typical advance in technology, and that computers would become ubiquitous enough in terms of adoption by the public that you could make a company that could create games for the computer and make money on that because there'd be enough people to sell them to. At what point in his life was Trip Hawkins when he decided to actually make these projections that 82 was a great time in order to set up a software company? So 1975, Trip Hawkins, I believe, would have still been in college. He was uh, certainly a very ambitious man from a young age, really great entrepreneurial material. He was very Jobsian, I think it's fair to say. Really? Oh, yes. Now, Steve Jobs is obviously a once-in-a-generation kind of talent. So Trip Hawkins is not Steve Jobs in the sense that no one is Steve Jobs. But he possessed a clarity of purpose and a clarity of vision and a clarity of philosophy and he possessed a magnetic personality and a charisma that allowed him to lure people to his vision and his philosophy. And he had a great desire to give talented people an environment in which they could do amazing things. So in that sense, Trip Hawkins was a very Jobsian figure, and he was from a very early age. This is a man that when he realized he was going to get into computer games at some point in his life, created his own major at Harvard, which Harvard University allowed you to do. I did not know they did that. Yeah, absolutely. You had to go through some hoops to do that. You first had to go around to all the departments that might potentially offer courses in the field you're developing and go to each of those departments and mm-hmm. have them sign off and say, yes, there's there's no way that you could achieve this goal solely through the classes in our major. So you had to get those sign-offs. You had to get an academic advisor to sign off. I mean, it's not like anyone could just come in and say, hey, I would like to major in sports ball mechanicizing, because that sounds fun. You really had to put effort into this if you wanted to do it. But Harvard, very prestigious school that attracts a lot of bright people, and so they did not want their students to be fully constrained by the regular curriculum. And since he already did this setup where he predicted that, hey, 82, I want to have a software company. I need to have the education and the goals in order to do this. I need to go to Harvard, which is one of the best schools in the country. I need to get from them a degree that is tailored to what I'm trying to accomplish. And if they're not doing it, then with this magnetic personality, as you said, and his drive and his will, he's able to go to every department and say, hey, I need to make this happen. Let's do this. Precisely. It's very tempting to discount the story that a young college-age Trip Hawkins just had an epiphany in 1975 and said, by 1982, I'm going to have a computer game company, which he did. He founded the company in 1982. And that's the kind of story that is often like, well, come on. Really? You just kind of sat there as a college student and were like, yeah, I'll have a computer game company. And then I did. Yeah, It's very easy to be cynical about that because oftentimes great men 
David Sarnoff at RCA, for example, is a great example of this, will kind of rewrite their own history to put themselves in the moment because they want to create a mythology around themselves about how mm. they were forward thinking. So that's something that David Sarnoff did, even though he did a lot of remarkable things in expanding RCA and bringing RCA into broadcasting and then later bringing RCA into television. He made up all of these stories about how he was the central figure in the first radio broadcast, which was the broadcast of a Jack Dempsey fight. And he talked about how he was the wireless operator relaying to the entire world what was going on on the Titanic when the Titanic <laughs> was sinking. And he gave himself all of these great accomplishments, which, in truth, he had nothing or at least very little to do with. He was involved with the Dempsey fight, but he was an assistant of an assistant of an assistant kind of guy. He wasn't instrumental in organizing it. And he wasn't the critical figure. Exactly. And he was not on the wireless with the Titanic. And these are the kind of things that came out later when historians did greater research. So it's very easy to be skeptical of Trip Hawkins and assume that he's doing the same thing. And it's always possible he is to a degree. Did he really perfectly predict that he would found his company in 1982, or did he give himself a broader range, for instance? Maybe he did. But I fully believe the bigger idea that he had this epiphany in college, because what does he do at that point? You just look at what he does. He creates his own major in strategy and applied game theory, which is kind of the closest thing you could do to game design degree in a period of time when there was no such thing as a game design degree. And there was no concept of it. Exactly. Then he got himself a job with Software Development Corporation and was kind of familiarizing himself with that computer world. He was also doing marketing research for Fairchild for their programmable console, that Fairchild Channel F that was the first programmable video game console. He went to them still as a student and did marketing research for them. So clearly, this is a man that is preparing himself for a career that has something to do with games. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, to found a business, you need to have business know-how. So the next thing he does is he goes to Stanford, uh, Stanford Business School as a graduate student, and he gets himself an MBA, Master's in Business Administration. So you can tell just by looking at each step he took in his life, that he really must have been moving towards this idea. He's very much sitting down and laying the groundwork he needs to accomplish his goal. Exactly. I need an education. I need to know how to run a business. I need to know how to do software. I need to know how to work with engineers in order to get the hardware and software I need to make my vision come to pass. Exactly. So while many of the details of electronic arts were certainly worked out later and Maybe his time frame was fuzzier than he admits or something like that. This is clearly a man that is dedicated to this goal of founding a computer game company. So when he gets out of business school with his MBA, he goes to Apple next. And he spends four years at Apple, 78 to 82, as a director of strategy and marketing. And he works on a few projects there. He was the first MBA that Apple ever hired, actually. Really? And so... He Exactly. So he brought a little bit of that marketing side. Now, there were some good marketing people in there. Mike Markula, who was the principal guy that 
funded the company for jobs in Wozniak and took a very important management role at the company. He had tons and tons of marketing experience from Fairchild and Intel. Mm -hmm. So it's not like there was no marketing expertise in the company. It's just this was the point when Apple was starting to hire more formally trained people and become a more disciplined company. And that's kind of the period of time when Trip Hawkins came in. All right. And Trip Hawkins finally decided in 1982 that he was finally going to do what he said he was going to do, and that is strike out on his own and establish a company dedicated to the creation of computer games. And that is what became Electronic Arts. How did he originally get the funding in order to make the company and make his vision come to pass? So Trip Hawkins came into Apple before Apple had its IPO, and he had stock options. And he was there when the company went public. And Apple had a massively oversubscribed IPO. It was a huge IPO. And anybody that had stock options at Apple at that time, like Trip, was now suddenly a millionaire. Nice. So the beginning of funding the company was he actually put some of his own money into the company, somewhere in the neighborhood of 200000 to $250,000 of his own money to keep the company going until he could actually get outside investment. Okay. And the other important thing that he did was he got in with Don Valentine. Don Valentine is perhaps the most legendary of all the Silicon Valley venture capitalists. His company, Sequoia, funded a great deal of the most important companies in Silicon Valley, including companies like Cisco and Atari and Oracle. And Don Valentine had also invested in Apple. He was not there on the ground floor. In fact, uh, he decided to pass Apple along, the Apple opportunity along to Mike Markula, precisely because he thought Jobs and Wozniak were a little scruffy and a little rough around the edges, and he wasn't ready to commit to them at the very beginning. But he did hmm. come in later in 1978, so Hawkins was vaguely aware of him at that point. And then he read an article about him in an airline magazine in 1982 about how he was a very intimidating guy that would not let his companies he invested in get away with anything. He would very much take an active role in any company he invested in, and he would push the principles of the company very hard to make sure that they became successes. And Trip Hawkins felt that that's someone that he would really like to have on his board, because that's someone he felt could be a mentor to him. And so he contacted Don Valentine and told him about this opportunity. And Valentine was very enthusiastic. And he told uh, Trip, you know, don't wait on this. Go ahead. Leave Apple. If you need office space, I will give you space in the Sequoia offices to help you get on your feet and start putting your plan together. Now, that's not investing at this point, because, of course, a venture capitalist is going to wait until they have a business plan in front of them and can see all the pros and cons before there's an investment. But Valentine was excited enough by the idea that he very much encouraged Trip to pursue it right away. And if he didn't have any faith in the idea, I mean, why give him office space, that give him encouragement, hey, leave him, I'm going to pay you or whatever in order to at least let you do the setup needed in order to make this come to pass so that 
I can validate that I can spend venture capital into your company. Precisely. So that's how he started attracting interest. So now he's working out of the Sequoia offices. He's funding himself. There's not much of a company at this point, but whatever expenses he has, he is funding himself through his new fortune from his Apple stock options. And it's at this point that our second major player in the founding of Electronic Arts enters the picture, and that's Rich Melman. Dum, dum, dum. So what's the story behind Rich Melman? How is he integral to the founding of Electronic Arts? So Rich Melman is older than Trip. He had been out in the business world for a while already. He had been at Intel as a strategic planning guy. He had joined Regis McKenna, the premier public relations and marketing consulting firm in Silicon Valley. And from Regis McKenna, he had joined Visicorp, which is the company that sold the VisiCalc software program that was the killer app for the Apple II and which made the home computer a viable business machine for the first time because this was a spreadsheet program. And the spreadsheet was kind of the one thing people hadn't figured out to do on a mainframe or mini computer before. So this was a brand new concept, the idea of a spreadsheet where you adjust numbers in one column and then it automatically adjusts numbers in the other column and you've suddenly saved an accountant 50 hours of calculating and erasing. Yeah. It, back then, before we had spreadsheets, which are so ubiquitous in business now, accountants have giant, giant ledgers that are just row upon row, very much like the spreadsheets we have now on computers. But it was amazing what they did. I actually talked to, in my HR department where I work, there's a lady there who's been there for a long time, and in some of her previous jobs, she had to actually deal with those ledgers. And she participated during in the transition from ledger to spreadsheet. It is just night and day the difference between ledger and spreadsheet it really is amazing for business the power that spreadsheets brought to the basic operation it i would argue it is as great as the invention of ledgers in the first place back in ancient times when merchants would walk around and sell things and write down debits and credits inside of a notebook sure it was revolutionary and it was something that had never existed in computers before. Word processors had existed on mainframes and mini-computers. Database programs had existed on mainframes and mini-computers. Many of the other programs that we now use regularly on a personal computer existed on a mainframe or mini-computer, but the spreadsheet did not. It was a brand new idea, and it was exciting. And now an Apple II, even though it was still a relatively expensive purchase at that time, could be justified by a small business because of all the time you would save in doing your accounting and your projections and your forecasting and all of that stuff. And so this was huge, and it's what made the Apple II, quite frankly. Apple has done a very good job of rewriting its history to make it seem like it was a highly successful company right off the bat. And certainly it was a profitable company, but the Apple II did not really sell all that well in the early 70s. It was far outsold by the Trash 80, the TRS-80 computer that Radio Shack put out, because Radio Shack's computer was not only cheaper, 
but it also had direct distribution into Tandy's network of Radio Shack stores and really got out to the general public in that way. And that created real consumer confidence that this is something that I can get in Radio Shack. And Radio Shack at that point already had a reputation as this is the place you go to for electronics. Before computers, Radio Shack was the hotbed of tinkerers, ham radio enthusiasts, people who like to play with electronics. I need to fix something with my television, and I feel confident enough that I can desolder this, solder in this component. It was really the maker store, you know, how we have the maker movement now where people design and make things on their own, and they buy things online in order to make that happen. Back in the day, before Radio Shack becomes what it is now, it was really the maker hangout place. You went there, there was a whole bunch of other people who had interest in electronics and how to make that work. That's right. And so a computer by Tandy, the parent company of Radio Shack, for Radio Shack customers gave people great permission to buy computers. So in the late 1970s, Tandy was selling hundreds of thousands of TRS-80 computers while Apple was really only selling tens of thousands of Apple computers because the computer was far more expensive. It was a $1,700 computer. And in late 1970s money, that's probably something on order of a $3,000 or $4,000 purchase today. You don't mess around with those kind of purchases. It was out of reach of the typical consumer. So Apple computers did really not sell in great quantities in the late 1970s. But then in 1981, VisiCalc comes out. And now, even though it's still an expensive computer, perhaps coming down in price a little bit just as technology gets cheaper, but still a very expensive computer, now it can be justified as a business expense. And that is when Apple finally became a big machine. And by 1983, Apple has now sold a million computers over its lifespan from 77 to 83. And it grows from there. So that's a very important moment. And that's the company that Rich Melman ended up working for. And he was working for them in a sales and marketing kind of role. And so he understood the retail sector in the computer business and in the computer software business. He understood the marketing side of computer software. Trip Hawkins was a product man, and he was a great product man. He was good at conceiving a product, figuring out a niche for a product, promoting a product bringing together people to make a product happen, but he was not a sales and marketing guy. And you need that if you're going to be involved in the retail business. Trip was the creative side, and Rich was the business guy, which is, as we've established before, is the really critical thing to have very successful companies. You need to have a visionary. You need to have someone who knows how to do business. That's true. And certainly Tripp knew how to do business, too. I mean, he was a Stanford MBA, but his business experience was in product management, and Rich Melman's business experience was in pure sales and marketing. So that's the, the match made in heaven right there. And Rich Melman was leaving Visicorp because Visicorp was disintegrating. There was a lot of corporate infighting going on. There was a real mess because VisiCalc was actually created by a different company on the East Coast and then sold by this company on the West Coast, and they had started as partners, and now that partnership was falling apart, 
and there was internal infighting between people as well. And the company was just in complete collapse mode and was very quickly superseded in the market by Lotus, the makers of Lotus 1, 2, 3. So Rich Melman wanted out of that because that was clearly a company falling apart. And he felt that he was ready to strike out on his own and create his own company as well. And he was not looking to do a computer game company. He was looking at educational software. He was looking at personal productivity software. He was looking at that other side of the home market from games. And he was making the round of venture capitalists. And he got in touch with Don Valentine. And Don Valentine was very interested in his idea as well. But he also said, there's another guy doing something very similar to you. His name is Trip Hawkins. And I think the two of you should meet because, quite frankly, it's very unlikely that we're going to fund two software companies. And we like both of you very much, and we would hate to leave one of you out in the cold, so maybe you two can figure out a way to do business together. Which is pretty revolutionary. So what uh, ended up happening? Did Rich go and talk to Trip, and then together they're like, hey, let's make EA. Yes and no. And this is kind of the crux of the disagreement on the early history of Electronic Arts. Trip Hawkins very much considers himself to be the only founder of Electronic Arts. Really? Even though Rich ended up going with him? That's correct. And they were partners. And Trip Hawkins doesn't remember it this way. So it is one person's word against the other. But Rich Melman, whom I interviewed, is very clear on the fact that they were partners. In fact, when they first met, he says that Tripp tried to hire him, and he said, no, we're not going to do it that way. We are going to be partners, or we are not doing this at all. So Rich considers himself to be a co-founder of the company. Okay. Because they agreed to enter a partnership at this point. Uh, 60-40 split is how Rich remembers it. Trip 60, him 40. That, obviously, after 30 years, 35 years, could be a little off, but that's what he remembers. And so he would consider himself very much to be a co-founder of the company. Mm -hmm. Trip Hawkins, first of all, denies that there was ever a partnership. He always says when he talks about it that Rich Melman was his first employee at Electronic Arts. But even if Trip were to concede that they went into partnership at that point, you have to remember that this happened probably in August of 1982. Okay. And Trip Hawkins incorporated Amazon Software, which was the original name of the company, in May 1982. So from Trip Hawkins' perspective, he had a company incorporated already. He had already put some of his own money into the company. And this is something Rich agrees on, by the way. Rich has said himself that Trip had been funding the company at that point and that Rich did not put any money into their partnership because Rich didn't have the money to spare to do that because he didn't have that Apple stock that Trip used. So they're both on the same page that Trip was the only one funding the company in the beginning. So from Trip's perspective, he already had a company incorporated. He already had self-funding going on within the company. 
so he would consider the company to have started in May 1982. And at that time, there was only Trip Hawkins. He was the only one sitting around going, all right, I take this paperwork, I file it, I quote-unquote officially have a company, and I'm spending the money in order to do whatever I have to do in order to maintain it from a financial and paperwork standpoint. That's right. But then if you look at it from Rich's side, at this point, it's only a company on paper. There's no employees of the company. There's no products of the company. There's no venture funding yet. The amount of personal fortune that Trip Hawkins is putting into the company is not enough to actually launch the company. They need venture funding. So is there really a company yet in August 1982 when the two of them meet? And I think Rich's argument would be that, well, no, there wasn't at that point because they didn't have a business plan finished. They didn't have funding in place. They didn't have all of those other things that are needed to actually have a working, viable company that exists in anything except on paper. So from Rich Melman's perspective, the company began in August 1982 when the two of them met and agreed to create a 60-40 partnership in this amazing software concept that Trip Hawkins had previously outlined. So that's a place where I think there's always going to be disagreement between the two principles here on what really happened. And I think it's Rich's view that Trip has rewrote history to give himself a more central role in the early days. And I think Trip would say that some of the early employees in the company have rewritten history to give themselves a grander role in the way the company was formed. And in terms of certain other people that have used the term co-founder in the past, like Bing Gordon, who we can talk about a little later, I think Trip Hawkins certainly has a case there. But in the terms of Rich Melman, I do think it's fair to call Rich Melman a co-founder. However, I fully understand Trip Hawkins' view as well, that he is the sole founder of the company. And I think his view also makes a lot of sense. I don't think he's just rewriting history when he says that. I think it depends on one's definition of when you really have a company. Is it when you've got it on paper? Or is it when you actually are able to take that company from paper and put it into practice? The truth is in the details. The truth is in the eye of the beholder. Which one do you hold as true? Is a company truly founded whenever you have the paperwork done? I could found a company now by just filing some paperwork and, yay, it's founded. Or is it truly a company and really founded when you have a business plan, venture capital, and you are actually producing something? That's right. And who are we to judge in this case? I would tend to be in agreement with Trip Hawkins that the company was solely his idea and solely his creation. So in that sense, he would be uh, the founder. However, I am happy to note Rich Melman's view that they entered a partnership. And it was as partners that they wrote a business plan. It was as partners that they sought venture funding. And it was as partners, they even gained the name Electronic Arts. So there's certainly a case to be made that 
Rich Melman is a co-founder of the company. Anyone else over the years that has claimed the title of co-founder clearly doesn't have any right to that appellation as far as I'm concerned. But if there's one person that does, it is Rich Melman. Now, you said that the original name was Amazing Software. At what point did it work its way over to Electronic Arts? According to Rich Melman, when they had their first meeting at a local area restaurant in Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. Rich had two conditions to coming on board. And remember, he definitely had some leverage because Trip needed a sales and marketing guy, and he knew he needed a sales and marketing guy. Right. And so this was a really good match because Rich Melman already had a lot of familiarity with the retail sector. He already had a lot of familiarity with how you package and sell software. So this was a very good opportunity to have a slightly more experienced and slightly more sales and retail-focused guy come into Amazing Software. So Rich really does have some leverage here, and he basically has two conditions to coming on board. The first was that they had to be partners. He was not willing to come into the company as an employee. The second condition that he had was that the name could not be Amazing Software. Really? He did not like the name. He just thought it sounded kind of, I'm not exactly sure, but probably that just kind of sounded hokey and strange and didn't really explain what kind of product they were actually going to sell. And that's the way Rich puts it, that he had those two conditions. When Tripp talks about the name change of the company, he doesn't single out Rich being unhappy with it. He basically just says that several of the early employees just didn't like the name Amazing Software. So whether it was just Rich or whether it was lots of people, the point is there was a profound dislike of that name Amazing Software. Okay. So they needed to make a change. And Trip Hawkins decided on the name Soft Art. This is a name that really made a lot of sense based on the core founding principles of the company, one of which was very much to treat game creators and game programmers as rock stars and as artists, people that have a unique talent that they're bringing to bear to create these entertainment products that can really be works of art. So soft art really captured this core principle very well of software and computer games as art. The only problem is that that VisiCalc program that we mentioned before, the company on the East Coast that developed it, that I very briefly mentioned, their name was Software Arts. So that's pretty much the same. Exactly. And there was no way that Software Arts was ever going to let them use that name. So they had to come up with something else. So at this point, Amazing Software had about a dozen employees. And Trip took them on a retreat to Pajaro Dunes, which was a very popular beachside place where a lot of companies did corporate retreats where they had beach houses and the like that you could rent and do business meetings or brainstorming sessions or whatever else you wanted to do. Took them all out to Pajaro Dunes and told everybody, fine, Amazing Software is not going to work. Soft Art's not going to work. We've got to have a name. 
we are going to decide the name today. We are going to decide the name by vote. And if you fall asleep, you lose your vote. Why did they have the tenant of you fall asleep, you get no vote? Because they were going to have a name that day. So if they were to complete impasse on a name, eventually everybody was going to be asleep except one or two dedicated people, and then it was their name that was going to be chosen no matter what anyone else thought. Okay. (laughs) So you fall asleep, you lose your vote because we're not reconvening. We're not taking this to a subcommittee. We're not having endless focus groups. We are walking out of this beach house with a name today. Or tomorrow, but if it's tomorrow, it's only because one person stayed up 36 hours and nobody else did. And it's they be get one... to decide the name. <laughs> exactly. It is going to be one naming session and no more games. Makes sense. They're brainstorming and somebody chose, or threw out the name, I should say, Electronic Artists. And the reason for this is going back again to this idea that they are going to be empowering game creators. This name, Electronic Artists, harkened back to the great movie studio United Artists, which had been founded in the 20s by Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, and Mary Pickford, three of the greatest stars in Hollywood, so that they would own the movie studio, and they would own the movies that they created, and the moguls at studios like MGM or 20th Century Fox wouldn't be the owners. The artists would be in charge of their own destiny. And so that's why they called themselves United Artists. Hmm. And Tripp's people saw themselves in kind of the same light. And so this name, Electronic Artists, really got a lot of traction as a result. But then one of the employees named Steve Hayes made a very important point. There were no artists at the company. The company's entire philosophy was that they would find game programmers, software artists, that they felt had talent, and they would provide them the tools and the funding they needed to create their games, but they would be independent contractors. They did not create their own games in-house. So there were no artists at Amazing Software, so the name didn't work. The thought there was that they would be almost like venture capitalists. We find people who have really good game ideas and we're going to give them the money and the power and the tools in order to create that great game and then we'll distribute it and publish it and make it happen. Well, the far closer analogy actually is to the record company. And this was very much where Tripp drew a lot of his inspiration from is the record business because recording companies, they go out and they find musicians, they find artists. And then they sign those artists to a recording contract. Mm -hmm. And then they give them a state-of-the-art studio or a hole-in-the-wall studio if they're a smaller label. But still, they give them a studio. They give them the equipment to create their music. And then they package that music and market that music and sell that music. But the artist is just under contract with the record company. They don't actually work for the record company. So... He was entirely pulling from the record industry when he came up with this idea of how to do software. So at that point, another one of the early employees, Tim Mott, was the one that said then, well, let's call it electronic arts. It gets the same point across, but it doesn't 
imply that we ourselves are the artists at the company. And that was it. That's how we got the company Electronic Arts. Do you happen to know about how many of the employees voted for that? No, I, I don't have any information on whether anyone actually fell asleep during the voting or whether it was unanimous vote or any of that stuff. I just know that there were about a dozen people and they all walked into a beach house together and they all walked out with the name Electronic Arts. You said before that the company wanted to treat core artists as rock stars. Are there other tenants that they had when they came up with the design for Electronic Arts or Amazing Software? Absolutely. So Electronic Arts was founded kind of on three core tenants, and this is certainly something that's been covered before. This is nothing new, but Artists as Rock Stars was one of those. The idea that they would have a producer that worked within the company that functioned very much like a record producer in the recording industry, who served as a liaison between the company and the talent and between marketing and product development and kind of helped draft the schedule of development and helped get the money out and worked with marketing to figure out how they were going to position the product and kind of stood at the center as the liaison between the creative and business sides. And then that producer would work with independent artists signed to software development contracts in which they would be paid in advance on royalties and then thereafter be paid on a royalty basis and that you would have a schedule of development with milestones and all of this stuff that we really take for granted within the video game industry today. A lot of it was implemented very early on at Electronic Arts. Now. Trip Hawkins likes to take credit for inventing the producer role in a computer game setting. Mm -hmm. It's very possible Activision did it just a hair before him. Because, you see, Activision was run by a fellow named Jim Levy, who actually came out of the record business himself. And so he understood this concept of the producer very well, and he understood this idea of liaising between talent and and marketing people in this manner and activision and electronic arts started using producers at just about the same time That's kind of funny yeah it's it's not surprising when you consider that one man was from the record industry and the other man was heavily heavily drawing influence from the record industry mm -hmm. so that the parallel evolution makes sense from that perspective and Activision also, they had done everything in-house on the 2600 because they were founded by four 2600 programmers that came from Atari. But by 1982, they were ready to transition into the computer game industry because they knew that home computers were going to be the future to some extent. Now, they did not anticipate that there would be such a sudden and violent crash of the video game industry. So they were taken off guard, which is why they ended up losing a lot of money for years mm -hmm. after that. But before the crash, they already knew they were moving into home computers. And since they didn't have in-house expertise on home computers, they were going outside to source their first computer game developers. So they were kind of doing the same model there that Trip Hawkins was doing on the home computer side. Though they obviously had creative people in-house, too, because they already had those creative people working on 2600 games, and then they did transition their in-house people to working on computer games as well. But they were also sourcing outside companies, and so they developed that producer role 
at about the same time because they found themselves in a similar situation where they were going to be sourcing talent that did not actually work for the company. Trip Hawkins says he invented the producer role. I think it's very possible Jim Levy invented it first, but Jim Levy, whom I also have talked to, is very quick to point out when I asked him about that, he said, it's possible we did it first, but there's no doubt that Trip Hawkins came up with it on his own. They both independently came up with the idea who came up first and stole it from the other is immaterial because they each came up with it independently. Exactly. Nobody's stealing here. This is definitely a parallel evolution kind of thing. But I I think that's interesting to point out because a lot of sources just follow Trip Hawkins' lead and say that Electronic Arts invented the producer role. And it's very possible that Activision actually did it first, and they certainly both did it nearly the same time. So that's core tenant number one. The artist is a rock star, and we are going to sign them to a contract and assign them a producer and help them be successful in the marketplace. All right. Number two is that they would directly distribute their software to retailers. And this is very revolutionary at the time. At this point, computer software is almost entirely delivered to retailers by the middleman that is the distributor, the company that buys up software in bulk from a lot of different small companies and then can go to a retail chain and say, I represent all these companies. I can give you all of the software. And the software companies... The early software companies love this because most of them are very small operations. They often don't have very business or sales-savvy people on staff, Mm -hmm. and so they can keep their overhead low on the business side by not employing a large number of salespeople and just have the distributor take care of that side of things for them. And the retailers like it because then the retailers can just deal with a couple of different guys. They're not having to do individual deals with every single software house that comes along. So the distributor has already evaluated the program before agreeing to add it to its catalog. Mm -hmm. So the retailer has some assurance that the program is going to be a good program if it's coming from a distributor that that already has a reputation for giving them a quality product. They already have an established mechanism to work with three or four whatever distribution companies and say, all right, guys, I need this software to stock my shelves what do you got? And all the software companies only have three or four companies they have to deal with to go, hey guys, I got this product here, which one of you guys want to give it a shot? Exactly. And so it's a useful middleman role, but obviously the downside for the software company is they're giving up a lot of control of their own fate because a distributor is going to think about how they can best position all the products they have to benefit their company the most. They're not necessarily going to push your product very strongly if they think that they can do a better job by pushing some other product. Hmm. So you lose the opportunity to maximize your sales and maximize the exposure of your products and position the products in the way you want. So there's definitely a downside. But at that time, the software industry didn't really want to deal with that. Because you didn't have a bunch of MBAs running these companies. Trip Hawkins was really the first one to come in and bring a bunch of sophisticated business people into the computer game industry. So he wanted to have a bigger say in things. And Rich Melman very much believed in having direct distribution as well because he had been 
working in computer software retail for a while at BusyCorp, and they were both very keen on kind of eliminating the middleman, getting all the profits for themselves, and having more control over the product. So tenant number two was direct distribution to retail. Mm -hmm. Tenant number three was quick and efficient porting of games across multiple platforms. Nowadays, we just think of the computer game business being monolithic because it's the PC business. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are Apple products, but really they have such small market share that the computer game business is a PC business, IBM PC compatible business. Back then, that couldn't be further from the truth because you had a lot of different computers with a lot of different processors. You had your Apple II, which was a 6502 computer. You had your Atari systems, which were also 6502, but with a completely different you know, graphics chip and a completely different way of doing graphics. You had Commodore's systems coming in. You had systems using the Z80 processor, which was popular with a segment of the market. You did have the early PCs coming in, though nobody really considered those game systems at this point. So there's a lot of fragmentation in the market. And that creates a very difficult way to put software out there because if I have to do all this special customization in order to account for all these different types of computers, it's very much like the console generation now, except uh, not as much because there's only like three or four of them. You still have to spend time to port the game from one system to another, and that takes time and effort, especially if things are drastically different and you can't reuse software and game code the same, and you have to come up with new, different ways to do something. Exactly. And so what would usually happen is that a game would have a lead platform that was actually developed for. Then you would subcontract out the ports to other companies. And again, this is because you sort of have to remember that most of the computer game companies at this time are very small operations. They don't have many programmers. They can't afford to have their own internal programming staff also do their own porting because that's time that could be spent on the next hit game. And you always need to be chasing the next hit if you want to stay in business in a hits-driven business like computer entertainment is. Mm -hmm. So they would subcontract out the ports, and the ports would often come out much later because the porting company had to wait until the original game was finished before they could port it, because they needed to know what they were porting. Mm -hmm. And they would often be inferior, because the quality control is never going to be as great when you're kind of keeping an eye on a distant company doing a port, because that's not your primary po focus. Your primary focus is finding and chasing that next hit. So ports tended to be late and inferior in quality. And Trip Hawkins felt that they could really do a lot better job and get a lot more profit on any given game if they could provide high-quality ports across all relevant platforms and do so relatively quickly. You're still not talking about simultaneous releases for the most part across a ton of platforms, but you're talking about getting the porting done faster and more efficiently. Which is very, very important to do, especially if you want to maximize your market share. That's right. So these were the three core tenants that Electronic Arts was founded upon, and all three of them were relatively new and revolutionary and 
hadn't really been seen in the computer game business before. Who came up with the uh, idea? Was that pretty much Trip? That was mostly Trip. Certainly the artist's rock star thing was entirely Trip's idea. He borrowed it from the record industry in part, mixed with his experience at Apple, which was a company that really appreciated the aesthetics of very accomplished creative people, because those are the kinds of people that Steve Jobs really appreciated. Now, the Apple of the late 1970s, early 1980s is not the Apple of the late 1990s, early 2000s. Jobs is a much rawer personality. He doesn't have the management experience, and he doesn't have the control of the company. There are other business people actually running the company. Mm -hmm. But that idea of appreciating a talented hardware engineer or a talented software engineer or someone that thought a little bit differently than someone else was still something that was very much part of that early Apple culture as well. And Trip Hawkins really saw that and bought into that and used that along with this record company idea of recording contracts and artists to kind of form this idea. Uh, the multi-platform thing was very much him as well. The uh, direct distribution thing, Rich Melman claims primary credit for coming up with that. Trip Hawkins also claims credit for it. He says that Apple did direct business to retailers. You know, Apple did not use a distributor for its hardware, and so that keyed him into the importance of having control of your own fate. And that's believable. I, I fully believe that that could have happened. It's also true that Rich had the far deeper experience in dealing with retail and retail channels, so I can certainly see him being the principal driver as well. So is it a case of they both came up with it individually? Is it a case that Rich came up with it, but Tripp, because of his experience at Apple, immediately agreed that that was the right way to go? Who can say? Again, it's a he said, she said thing, but there's no doubt that this is something that Tripp did believe strongly in, even if Rich was the first one to plant it in his ear. Okay, so we have the basic setup. We got where the name came from, and we have the idea of how they want to do a company. How do they go out the gate? What was the first big game they worked on as electronic arts? So you have two parallel processes going on here. You've got to staff up the company in order to source product, and then you have to find independent artists, independent computer programmers to make that product for you. So these two processes are going on in parallel, and they're going on while they're getting their venture funding in place, which ends up coming from Sequoia. It also comes from Ben Rosen at Rosen Severn, which is a very important company. And then they got a round of funding from John Doerr, who today is an absolute legend in Silicon Valley, but back then was closer to starting out. And so he was a little bit raw again, as so many people were back then, but now is a legend. Mm -hmm. And they were able to get some price wars going, actually, because John Doerr basically came into Rich Melman late in the process and begged to be part of the deal. They knew each other. They went way back uh, at Intel and other places. And so because they had so many people wanting to get in, they were able to get a better deal than they might have been able to otherwise. So they got themselves funded through those three primary sources and started staffing up. So Trip Hawkins brought in a couple of people from Apple as his very early employees. Two of the project managers that worked for him there, a guy named Dave Evans and a woman named Pat Marriott, he brought them in to be his first producers because the producer role and the project manager role are very similar. Oh. Well, the project manager role is what's used in the tech field and what's used in engineering when you're 
putting a product together. They're kind of the people that lead the design of a product and lead the team that is building a product. They don't have the same broad powers to liaison with marketing and liaison with those other business sections of the company, but they're kind of setting the schedule. They're setting the timetable, getting a product developed. So a product manager is essentially the same as a producer, but with slightly less power. So it makes sense to get a couple of product managers to be his first producers because they already have some of this idea and he worked with them at Apple. So he already knew that they were pretty good at what they were doing. So those were the first two people he brought in. Uh, Then pretty soon after that, he brought in Joe Ibarra, which was another Apple guy, though, funnily enough, they didn't know each other at Apple. Tripp and Joe never met at Apple. But Joe came to his attention as somebody else who kind of understood this product management side of things. And so then Joe Ibarra came in as a third producer and ended up staying at Electronic Arts for a lot longer than Evans or Marriott did. Both of them left relatively quickly. Pat Marriott after about a year, Dave Evans after about two years. So Ibarra was one of the key people that kind of shaped the producer's role because he stayed longer. And then they brought in Stephanie Barrett to be uh, in charge of administration. After that, uh, the next employee to come in would have been Bing Gordon. And Bing was someone that went back, way back with Tripp, to his business school days. They went to business school together. They did that marketing research I told you about for Fairchild. They did that together. Bing was along for the ride. Bing came from a more creative background. He was really into writing. Hmm. And that was kind of where he was coming from. I mean, he was going to business school, but he was very much, he was coming out of this creative writing background. And so he was doing marketing and writing copy and advertising and whatnot was what he was interested in. So Bing Gordon, who ended up staying at EA all the way until 2008, was invited into the company at this point. He almost didn't join. He was very tempted to join a brand new ad agency that was just starting up and which essentially became the noted ad agency Goodby Berlin and Silverstein, which was one of the premier ad agencies in Silicon Valley, still Mm. is today. Among other things, they created the famous Sega Scream and the Welcome to the Next Level campaign for the Sega Genesis. Okay. So he almost joined that company, but he was finally convinced to come into Electronic Arts, and he served as kind of the ad man under Rich Melman in the marketing department. Then after that, Rich Melman... Most of the people brought into the company in the early days were brought in Mm -hmm. by Tripp. The main important person that Rich Melman brought in was Tim Mott. Tim Mott was an engineer, and he was coming out of Xerox Park, Palo Alto Research Center, which is very famous for being the place where essentially the modern computer interface was born. If you're using a mouse, if you're using GUIs, if you're using what you see is what you get applications, like Microsoft Word, you are using concepts that were refined at Xerox Park. Not all of them were developed first at Xerox Park. Obviously, the mouse came from Douglas Engelbart at the Stanford Research Institute. The inception of that kind of technology really came from Xerox Park. That's right. And, you know, just for the heck of it, they invented Ethernet, too, because <laughs> why not? So... Tim Mott came out of that background, and he became the chief technical guy, because the idea was you had to have technical people on staff to provide the equipment, just like a record company has sound engineers on hand to man the recording booth. 
you have technical people, hardware people on hand to craft development stations and build development tools to allow for the games to be created more quickly and painlessly and to allow the porting to happen quickly and painlessly. So Tim Mott was someone that Rich Melman knew. They had met through mutual friends when Rich Melman was at Visicorp. So he brought Mott into the company, which was very important. And Mott brought in a couple of other guys named Steve Hayes and David Maynard, who then worked together to build the development stations that would be used to help create these products quickly and easily. And Steve Hayes, in particular, uh, was very important to the company down the line because he was one of the two people primarily responsible for the reverse engineering of the Sega Genesis, which allowed Electronic Arts to get a really good deal on their third-party development contract with Sega and was really a big part in why they became the real powerhouse that they became down the line. But at this point, he's just helping develop these artist workstations, as Electronic Arts called them. Then, uh, you know, a few more people came in. Trip Hawkins brought in another one of his business school buddies, Jeff Burton, who had been working at Atari to kind of do international development and the like, because he had experience doing that at Atari. A fellow named Stuart Bond came in, originally in sales, because he... Uh, I'd worked for IBM for a lot of years, and in fact, <laughs> Tripp originally rejected him because he'd worked at IBM for a lot of years because he felt that that wouldn't be a good fit, kind of conservative button-down right. business. But he was a guy that understood understood sales in the computer business and then actually transitioned from sales to being a producer and was very important in shaping the early creative efforts of the company starting in about 1984. And Stewart brought in a guy named Monty Fenefrock who was a product manager at DEC for many, many years, Digital Equipment Corporation, and had also worked at Atari, where they were doing a very similar thing to the Electronic Arts Artist Workstation. This is something people don't really know about that much. Atari had something called the APX, the Atari Program Exchange, in which they actually sourced computer software from amateur developers and printed them in a catalog for people to... uh, peruse and buy. So it wasn't official Atari software, but it provided an outlet for kind of independent developers. And if something became a hit, then maybe we'll invest some money and make you a bigger product. Exactly. And almost a form of indie game development. And people know about the APX, but what people don't realize is that Atari was actually starting to build development centers where this independent talent could actually come in and use Atari's equipment to make games. So this is very similar to what Electronic Arts is doing with the artist workstations. And Monty Finnefrock had been running that operation for Atari. And so he was brought in to be the producer on the ports. He was the guy responsible for making sure that games were quickly and efficiently ported across platforms because he had experience running these kind of operations. So he comes in, a few other producers come in. Some more people on the marketing side, Stan Roach, a product manager whom Rich Melman had hired for Visicorp and then left Visicorp right mm. afterwards. <laughs> and he kind of felt bad about that. So he gave Stan Roach an opportunity to come and be in electronic arts. And so while Bing Gordon focused on advertising, Stan Roach became kind of the primary numbers guy and he had a real knack for forecasts and projections. And so he played a 
kind of key role in developing the company and making sure that the company was targeting platforms in an intelligent manner. So you have a lot of people coming I really in at this feel point. that it's almost like we need to have almost a visual aid where you have a whole bunch of pictures of all these people in the hierarchy and a bunch of yarn of how they all interact and came in and it seems like they're pulling in all these people from different companies like hey i know a guy who does this i know a guy who does that we're gonna bring him in to do work on this we're gonna bring him to bring in and work on that and that person over there he's good at doing that international thing let's uh bring him in and so on and so forth that's true and i think stan roach whom i've also talked to really put it best when i asked him kind of about the philosophy of how they grew the company is that Electronic Arts wanted the best person available in the job, no matter what that job was. If they were going to have a hardware engineer, it was going to be the absolute best hardware engineer they could possibly find. If it was going to be a secretary, it was going to be the best possible secretary that they could find. And I'm sure every company likes to think that they're only hiring the best people that they can find, but Electronic Arts took pride in making sure that everybody in the company was not only a top-notch person, but was multi-talented. Hmm. So there was a lot of that movement. Stuart Bond started in sales, but he moved over to be a producer because there was more to him than just a salesman. He had that ability to recognize good software. Don Traeger was another guy who was brought in in about 1984, 1985 from Atari, who was a marketing guy. And he came into the company to do marketing. But again, Trip Hawkins recognized very early on that he was, that he understood product. And so he moved over to be a producer. Rich Hilleman was hired to basically be a glorified hmm. IT guy. But he had that same talent and he became an associate producer and then he became a producer and he still works at electronic arts today as their chief creative officer but this guy was hired to help maintain equipment he wasn't hired to be that creative guy but that's the electronic arts philosophy in those early days find multi-talented people that can grow into other areas of the company and make sure you are always bringing the best people to bear on any given task so that's uh, the way kind of Stan Roach put it, and I think that that really illuminates the early philosophy of electronic arts. The other thing is that all of these people were consummate professionals with a lot of experience and a lot of advanced degrees. Trip Hawkins had an MBA. Bing Gordon had an MBA. Stan Roach had an MBA. All of these people had these advanced degrees, and this had not happened yet in the computer game industry. Most of the computer game companies were founded essentially by accidental entrepreneurs in a sense. They're people that got into computer programming, got interested in computer programming, and created a product or two, and then created a company to sell that product. So these weren't MBAs. Some of them had advanced degrees. Broderbund was founded by mm -hmm. a lawyer, for instance. But they were learning business as they went. And so you have highs and lows when you're learning business as you go. Electronic Arts knew business from the very beginning, and they brought a level of professionalism and a level of sophistication to business practices that had not previously existed in the computer game industry. And this was really a 
kind of key moment in which the computer game industry started growing up and became less hobbyist and more business. And whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing kind of depends on where you stand on the whole creativity versus business spectrum. And so this is either the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, depending on how you feel about that. But it was definitely a watershed moment. Uh, so they way. have a really good team. They brought in a whole bunch of people. They got the tenants. They're ready to go. All right. What is their first product? They launched with six products. So the company's founded in May 1982. Business plan really starts getting going in about August when Rich Melman comes in. Business plan is essentially finished by about October. Mm -hmm. October is also the point where they finally moved out of the Sequoia offices and had their own facilities in Burlingame, right in the flight path of San Francisco Airport. So a little bit noisy. A bit. Uh, January 1983, they moved to what remains their home for over a decade, city of San Mateo. Then in May of 1983, or about one year after Trip Hawkins first incorporated this company, Amazing Software, Electronic Arts launches its first six products into the marketplace. Trip Hawkins' goal, just like with the people that he brought into the company directly with his software artists, was to find the most creative and most talented independent software artists out there. So obviously he's not dealing with companies that already publish their own stuff like Sirius Software or Online Systems, Sierra Online, or Broderbund. He's dealing with individuals or companies that, that don't do their own publishing. The first people to come on board were John Freeman and Ann Westfall. John Freeman was one of the pioneers in the computer game industry. He and John Connolly founded Automated Simulations in 1978, which was one of the very first computer game companies, and had made a name for themselves in role-playing games with games like Temple of Apshai and Rescue at Rigel. And these were some of the first computer RPGs for personal computers. He had a falling out with John Connolly, decided to go off on his own. He had met Ann Westfall, who by this time he was dating and would then marry. They created Freefall Productions together, based on their last names, and decided to strike out on their own. And they actually answered Trip Hawkins' ad as a personal favor to a friend and ended up signing up as a hmm. software artist for uh, the company. And the launch product they created was Archon, which is a very classic oh, I love chess-like so... game. Yes. One of my favorite memories is playing that game with my dad on the Commodore 64. It didn't matter which side I was on. I always lost to him. But it was just so fun just to have the whole chess thing going back and forth. And then whenever the pieces met, you'd go into this big battle arena and try to take each other out. Exactly. Action and strategy all mixed into one platform. So they were the first ones to sign on. The first one that Trip personally pursued very heavily, because Ann and John ended up coming to him, was Bill Budge. Bill Budge was one of the most legendary early Apple game programmers, and he was particularly well known for his pinball games like Raster mm. Blaster. He understood the system very well because he had actually worked at Apple. 
And he started creating games while he was at Apple, sold a couple of them on, then actually created his own company to market his own products called BudgeCo. And this was one of the few big names in the business at this time. Most programmers were still fairly anonymous, but there were a few that were really well-known within the community. Nasir Gabelli was one at Sirius Software who was just considered a genius, and Bill Budge was another. And so Trip Hawkins knew that he needed somebody really big to make a splash if he wanted his concept to work. And so Bill Budge was the guy he honed in on. And it took a lot of convincing because at this point, Bill Budge already did have his own company. Right. But he basically told Bill Budge, I can't do this without you. And he offered him very generous terms. I think stock might have even been involved, which was not typically the case for the artists being hired. And he brought him on board. He got him to come on board. And the product that he made was called Pinball Construction Set. And it was revolutionary because not only did it allow you to design and play your own pinball tables with accurate physics and all that on the computer, mm -hmm. but it had a GUI interface because Bill Budge had worked on the Lisa at Apple. And the Lisa was one of the first computers that had a GUI interface, so he knew what a GUI was. So anyone could design their own pinball tables because it was point and click, drag and drop. You would have all of your different bumpers and flippers, and other features on one side of the screen, and you would use your joystick, not a mouse at this point, because GUIs are still not common, but you would use your joystick to go over and click and grab those pieces and then arrange them on the screen, which was absolutely astounding in a period of time where creating something meant using a parser and typing obscure commands. It's the first time you actually had dev tools in order to make levels effectively exactly and you know he already had experience with pinball games and so his physics were really spot on and the fluidity of his animation was really spot on and so combine that with build whatever you want quickly and easily with a gui interface and you had what was ea's first really massive hit it sold three hundred thousand copies and at that time if you sold 100,000 copies, you had a massive hit on a computer platform. So 300,000, I mean, that's out of this world. More than anyone could ever anticipate. I mean, that's like a 5 million seller today or a 7 million seller today, you know, to kind of put those into relative terms. I mean, that's a, that's a huge hit. So he was the first one that came on. Another very early one that came on was Dan Bunton, who later changed her name to Danny Bunton-Berry. She uh, ended up identifying as a woman and having reassignment surgery, so proper to refer to her as Danny Bunton-Berry today. Mm -hmm. And Danny had created an in-depth business simulation for Strategic Simulations, SSI, called Cartels and Cutthroats. And this game did not sell very well, but Trip Hawkins who, you'll have to recall, had played games himself in the past and really enjoyed deep simulation-style games, was really taken with this game, Cartels and Cutthroats, even though it didn't sell well, because it had a very interesting economic model, very interesting simulation, and it was multiplayer, which was fairly unusual at the time in most mm -hmm. games. And so he really pursued Danny Buttonberry and her company, Ozark Softscape, in Arkansas, and initially, he had hoped to create a 
cartels in Cutthroat's port for the Atari 800 for their game to do with the company, but SSI wouldn't let the rights to that go. So they ended up developing a new game together called Mule, which is one of the most fondly remembered games of this era. Now, it only sold 30,000 copies. It was a commercial disappointment, Mm -hmm. but it was heavily pirated and it was heavily influential. It had up to four people playing together because the Atari 800 actually had four joystick ports. So you could actually have four-player games on the Atari 800. And all four players are competing against each other to corner the resource markets on a distant colony. But they have to work together to a degree or the economy collapses. Hmm. But in the end, they're trying to be the dominant company controlling the resources. So it's a combination of competitive and cooperative where at the end of the day, only one person's going to win. So it was a game that many, many people enjoyed, even though it ended up a commercial failure. So that's considered one of the classics, a real watershed moment in multiplayer gaming. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was another one that came in. Those were kind of the big ones at the start. There were a few other games. David Maynard, who actually was an employee of the company, created one of the starting games. And uh, a couple of teenagers submitted a game that was a Donkey Kong clone, essentially called Hard Hat Mac. And Hard Hat Mac did okay. And then they had a couple other games to fill out that initial release. So it sounds like they really did fantastic just coming out and doing things together and became an instant success. So that is the way it's often portrayed. And certainly a couple of the games like Pinball Construction Set and Archon were successes right out of the gate. But actually, Electronic Arts really struggled in its first year and a half or so before it finally found its footing. And uh, there were a couple of reasons for this. First of all, direct distribution to retailers is very hard. Electronic Arts was a small company at this point, trying to break into an established distributor network and trying to convince companies, trying to convince retailers that, yes, you really should take lots and lots of our product because we've got great product for you here. They only had six products, whereas a distributor like SoftCell, which was the leading distributor they had, the rights to the games from all the big guys, Sirius and SSI and Broderbund and Sierra and Adventure International and Everybody under the sun went through soft sell. They can offer dozens upon dozens of products in every genre and from leading companies, and you know their stuff's going to be good. And so this is your go-to guy, is soft sell. Mm -hmm. If you're electronic arts, you need to have really savvy salespeople and lots of them working nonstop to convince every individual retailer to take your product. And this is a time when there's still a lot of mom-and-pop stores. I mean, you have a couple of chains like Computerland or what have you. But a lot of this is still mom and pop at this point. So you have to have a lot of different contacts. And Electronic Arts, quite frankly, just wasn't up to it in that first year. Uh, Rich Melman says that he ended up hiring a sales guy to run sales under him that just didn't end up being that strong. And so they really floundered on the sales side because they had a very challenging task to integrate themselves into the existing retail landscape. And they just didn't have the people that were up to that challenge. It's really hard to break into an established industry, especially if you're trying to bring up your company from the ground up, and that's not your primary focus. If I'm trying to be this software company and make rock stars be able to do their thing, 
And then I also have to set up from the ground up a distribution system. That's hard to do, especially if I'm going up against people who are purely just doing distribution. Exactly. So that was a problem. The other real problem that they had was that they missed their target platform. They just missed on that. So Trip Hawkins very much wanted to be on the most cutting-edge platform he could be Mm -hmm. because this is all about this is art, this is great, brilliant stuff, and we want to empower our artists to be as good as they can be, and that means giving them all the best equipment, which also means giving them the best target platform. At that time, the Apple II was kind of the leading computer game platform it was it had really overtaken the trs-80 because the trs-80 was only capable of monochrome graphics and was very primitive graphically the apple had a bitmap screen and could do color so you had a lot more control of the screen and you could make it somewhat colorful so that uh became the default platform the atari 800 was superior and it had a superior graphics chip. It had sprites, which the Apple II didn't have. And it was a great platform. But initially, Atari, and more importantly, Warner, which owned Atari, had decided that they were going to keep everything proprietary, and they actually didn't release system specs and technical manuals and documentation for third parties to kind of wrap their heads around the system. So even though it was the superior platform, it had only recently become viable for people to develop for outside of Atari itself because the technical know-how was only just being... The technical know-how was just only in Atari. Well, it was just starting to leak out of Atari. Now they were starting to get technical manuals out. Now programmers outside of Atari had poked at the system enough that they knew how it worked. So Apple kind of had the lead, but Atari was the better platform. And in 1981, 1982... Other companies were starting to transition to the Atari more and more because it was a good platform. And so that's the platform that Trip picked to be his target platform. Everything in that first six games was released for the Atari 800. A couple of them also had Apple versions, Apple II versions, Mm -hmm. but they were really for that Atari 800 platform primarily. Okay. What happened then, though, is that in late 1982, Commodore released the Commodore 64, which did a great job with sprites and did a great job with music and had some pretty decent graphics. One could argue whether the Atari 800 or the Commodore 64 was superior. They were in some ways kind of neck and neck, as long as you had fully expanded memory, all of that being equal. Mm -hmm. But what happened is because the video game crash, Atari suffered a huge loss in 1983, fired the CEO, Ray Kassar, and brought in a new guy named James Morgan. James Morgan came out of the uh, tobacco industry, a exec- longtime executive at Philip Morris, and he needed some time to wrap his head around the Atari operations. So Ray Kassar is fired in July. Morgan's hired beginning of August, but takes a vacation at first mm-hmm. and doesn't actually start working till September. Then he orders a complete freeze on product development while he evaluates the company because the company's hemorrhaging money and he's going to have to shut down projects that he doesn't think are viable under these economic conditions. So he freezes new product development at the company while he evaluates everything. Which makes it really hard for EA. Well, no, it doesn't make it hard for EA, but what it does is it 
essentially cedes Christmas to Commodore because ah, Atari okay. can't really get new competing products out to take on Commodore head on. So what happens is that Commodore owns Christmas 1983. Atari fades from the scene very quickly and never regains its footing in computers. Mm -hmm. This being Atari Incorporated, the original company, obviously Jack Trammell buys the company's consumer division, merges into his company, creates Atari Corporation, and they have success in computers. But Atari Incorporated never has success in computers again. And the Commodore 64 owns Christmas, and Electronic Arts isn't making games for it. Yeah, Electronic Arts is making games specifically for Atari. Atari isn't bringing its products to market. EA is kind of out of luck. And you have Commodore that busts out of the gate and goes, Hey guys, we got this stuff, and we're the only option. And they get bought up all over Christmas, and and then Electronic Arts goes, well, we need software for that. That's right. So they missed their projections the first year. Uh, some of the games are a little too out there. Really, only Hard Hat Mac, Archon, and Pinball Construction Set are successes right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Mule, very fondly remembered today, but not a commercial success. Hard Hat Mac, virtually forgotten today because it was just a rather generic clone, but financially successful at the time. Archon and Pinball Construction Set, both considered classics and top sellers. So only about half their products do very well. They don't get the retail distribution they need. They're on the wrong platforms, so their sales are inhibited by that. And they miss their projections. And this is the point Rich Melman is kind of forced out of the company. Really? Even though he was effectively a co-founder? Exactly. And of course, he's no longer a 40% owner of the company because as they brought in more people and as they brought in the venture capitalists, they reduced their stakes as other people came in. But he was still a co-founder and a partner and on the board as well, I believe. Mm -hmm. But he was the sales and marketing guy, and so he was the guy that missed his projections. And somebody has to take the fall in a situation like that, and it's normally not going to be the CEO. If if you miss two or three times, then they go after the CEO. But the first time they miss, they assume it's management lower down the chain, and they get rid of the sales guy or the marketing guy or whatever. Happens two or three times, then they, you know, dump the CEO. But Trip wasn't going to get fired for missing quotas that first year, but somebody had to answer for it. And so that's when Rich Melman left the company. And part of the reason why I think he's kind of faded into history a bit is he didn't stay at Electronic Arts very long. He was only there for the first half year to a year. Exactly. So they made some missteps, not as successful as they could have been. Few things came out of that. First of all, they got much better at projections and forecasting, and Stan Roach played a key role in that, I think. They stopped the typical business practice of doing their projections based on a full year and started doing their projections on a quarterly basis instead. They became lean and hungry and very sensitive to shifts in target platform to make sure that this would not happen to them again, mm -hmm. that they would not miss the boat. And this became very important when they decided to back the Commodore Amiga in 1985 and 1986 because, again, Trip liked being on the latest and greatest platform, and that was the Amiga at that time. But turned out that the Amiga didn't sell well, and so they were in danger again of missing the boat. But because they had gotten so good at turning on a dime, they just went right back into C64 software without missing a beat and continued to be very successful that way. So that was one thing they did. The other thing is they brought in Larry Probst, 
to be their sales guy. Mm -hmm. And Larry Probst, who later became president and then CEO and chairman of Electronic Arts and was associated with the company for a couple of decades. And Larry replaced uh, Rich, right? Well, he was only doing sales. So Melman had done sales and marketing. Probst was just doing sales. So he didn't exactly replace Melman, but he took on some of that role. And Probst was a very, very good salesman. And he reorganized the sales force and he got them out there. He got them organized. He built a network. And then they started expanding their network by serving as the distributor for other publishers using an affiliated label program. And that allowed them to increase their distribution clout and get retailers more anxious to deal with them and led a transition away from middleman distributors to larger publishers distributing for smaller publishers. And so that was kind of a key thing that they did. And then the third thing is they just, they happened into some really great games. So the first set of products were maybe a little too out there because Trip Hawkins was too focused on artistry. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second round of games they got included things like one-on-one, Dr. J versus Larry Bird, classic sports game, included Sky Fox, which was a 300,000 plus unit seller. Uh, There was a kind of flying shooting game, action game. They had music construction set in 1984, which wasn't a game. It was kind of a music composition program, but it was still something that sold a ton of units. And they just, they found some good software. They had it on the right platforms and they had a sales force that could really push it, push it, push it. And so really it was in 1984, 1985 that the company really started to become the juggernaut that we think of Electronic Arts as today. That's quite the story, Alex. Quite the story. I I think so. And some of it's been told and some of it hasn't been. And certainly it was exciting for me to interview people like Rich Melman and Stan Roach, who hadn't really been talked to before, and as well as interviewing Trip Hawkins myself. And hopefully I'll get in touch with more people from that era down the line because there's some very interesting stuff there on on the early history of electronic arts. All right. I guess at this point, what's going to be our next show? Well, we spent our first couple of podcasts discussing the console industry kind of in depth. And now for the first time, we've really done a computer game topic in depth. So it seems like it might make sense to shift to kind of that other leg of the tripod that was the video game industry for kind of its first two and a half decades of existence which would be the arcade industry. Arcades have really changed a lot over time. Arcades have existed at this point for about 140, 150 years, but what an arcade was in 1890 and what an arcade was in 1950 and what an arcade was in 1980 were all very different things. And because the video game industry was first kind of born in the arcades. The arcade is where the first successful video game industry came into being. I think it's kind of interesting to look at how arcades have changed over the years and why arcades were a good place for video games to be born, but are no longer a good place for video games to evolve. Sounds good to me. And we will see you next time. On They Create Worlds. You forgot the rest of it. Well, fine. And we will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com 
where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com, email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.